0: Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host. I'm Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor for Colorado Christian University. We appreciate you listening to the podcast today. It's been a while since we've done a standalone podcast. There's been a lot of things going on in the life of the church this time of year, um, a lot of responsibilities, and so sometimes it's hard to get in and actually record a standalone podcast, but I know a lot of the listeners have wanted for me to address uh, certain issues, and so I brought in um, my youth pastor, Andrew Hayes, again, to join us for this podcast, so welcome to the podcast, Andrew.
1: Yeah, glad to be back.
0: Always glad to have you on here. We always get good feedback uh, when you're on the podcast with us. And so what we want to address today is the issue of Molinism. Now, you may have heard the term Molinism, or maybe you've never heard the term um I did not really give a lot of credence to Molinism. I didn't do a lot of study in Molinism. Um, I knew it was out there. I knew it was kind of a third view, kind of a hybrid between Arminianism and Calvinism. And I really didn't study it or go in depth into it. But in the past few weeks, I've been more interested in it because um, philosophers like William Lane Craig... Um, Kenneth Keithley who's a professor at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, they seem to be gaining some traction it seems to be on a lot of people's radar screens as an alternative or an attractive alternative uh, to the label of Calvinism or Arminianism and so you have people that you know I don't want to be a Calvinist I don't want to be an Arminian so I'll be a Molinist and so um, what is Molinism well a Jesuit Catholic theologian named Luis de Molina. He lived from 1535 to 1600. Um, He was the one that basically struggled with some of the teachings on predestination from Augustine and Aquinas and Luther, um, the view of Reformed theology, of God's omniscience, God's foreknowledge, how all that works together. And and basically, um, Molina argued that God's hypothetical knowledge... Of free decisions is logically prior to God's creative decree, and so that was kind of a new idea uh, in in church history. And so, thus, because his name's Molina, named after him, like Calvinism or Arminianism, Molinism. Um, and so, basically, there's three tenets. Uh, are, are ways that Molinists understand God's knowledge. Now, one thing that we have to understand about Molinism is that it is good in the sense that they do believe that God has exhaustive foreknowledge of all things. They right. do believe in God's... God does not learn, so it's not open theism. Right. Um, but let's talk about the three types of knowledge. So, number one, God has natural knowledge. And how they would define natural knowledge is that God knows everything that could happen. So God has knowledge of all contingent possibilities, mm-hmm. um, the, the infinite number of possibilities that would happen from free creatures. God has that natural knowledge. Okay? Right. Secondly, God has what they call middle knowledge. And they define this as God knows everything that would happen. God knows which possibilities are feasible. And so, so in between... After this whole idea of God's middle knowledge, um, from God's natural knowledge of what could happen, from God's natural or God's middle knowledge of what would happen, he logically chooses this particular world to create from an infinite number of feasible possibilities that he foresaw. And then number three, there's God's free knowledge. God knows everything that will actually, in fact, happen so God has exhaustive knowledge. And so you've got, I, I know this conversation is very philosophical, and we're kind of going into the deep end of the water, but I, I want to address Molinism because they do address this whole idea of middle knowledge. And the reason I've, I've brought Andrew into the mix is because when we first hired Andrew, it was about seven years ago at Emmanuel Baptist Church, and we were yep. going through his theology, and um, you know, he said he was a Molinist. And so, you know, that was not a strike against him to say, oh, he's a yep. Molinist. He can't be on staff here. Um, since then, he's, he's kind of uh, come to abandon Molinism. But I want you, Andrew, it may be helpful for our listeners to tell, talk about your journey. Um, why, why was Molinism so attractive to you? Why did you kind of delve into it for a while? And so kind of give us your story, your background.
1: Right. So I grew up in a church that was very uh, Arminian. Uh, so they definitely discounted uh, the doctrines of grace and... Um, just the idea that God uh, decrees things from eternity past, and there was sort of this reaction against it. And I remember going, my pastor going through the book of Romans and being very, <laughs> trying to make it say what it doesn't say. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not looking in hindsight, but that's kind of what was going on, but I wasn't quite I get smart enough to realize that then as a teenager. But anyway, one of the things that came out of that was that Calvinism was sort of like the boogeyman. You know, it was the one thing you didn't want to be in my church was a Calvinist. And so I went to college, and I began to encounter some roommate, uh, some guys that were living on my floor who actually were Calvinists. I couldn't believe that there were actually such things out there that people <laughs> actually believe that theology. And these guys, I got to admit, these these couple of guys were very patient with me Um kept pointing me to the scripture, which is what they should be doing all along. Um, and I was trying to do, uh, trying to make it say something I didn't say, and then I realized that, yeah, I'm going to have to change my position because this is not what the Bible is teaching. Uh, what I'm saying is not what Paul is saying <laughs> in the book of Romans. So I began to kind of search out, seek out options, because I still didn't want to be a Calvinist. I didn't want to admit I was wrong and (laughs) jump into that position. So I was looking for an alternative, and that's where I kind of began to encounter Molinism. I think I first encountered it in my Intro to Philosophy class at a Christian college, and it had some appeal to me.
0: What college was that?
1: Um, It was Wheaton College when I first encountered it. Uh, And so I began to kind of study and and kind of read up on on Molinism, and like, yeah, you know, that seems to make a certain amount of sense. And uh, I thought I was a Molinist for a while because it seemed to kind of express what I – what I was thinking without being a Calvinist and kind of moving more towards the, the direction of the sovereignty of God. And, you know, then eventually, as I kind of, uh, I actually went through and read the works of Molina and some of the other um, other k- kind of well-known Molinists, such as Moreland and Craig. Let's and stop right Keithley.
0: there. Yeah, let's talk about, so um, I hate to interrupt you, but you read Molina's
1: like right. firsthand,
0: so you actually read the original sources to see what right. his argumentation was.
1: Yeah, because everybody was talking about Molinism, and I was like, well, at some point I, I want to read the primary source. You okay. know, I just don't want to read what other okay. people and are so saying about good. it. And, that,
0: and that's good. And so let's just stop right there. Let's just talk about um, – sometimes when we throw labels out and we talk about certain teachings and certain philosophies and certain theologies, um, a lot of people can get their theology from what I would call like – christian wikipedia or they get it from a blog or a facebook post why is it so important even for late like you weren't even a pastor back then you were just a college why is it important for people to go back to the original sources to get their theology
1: right you know it's uh, it's very important to know what actually those individuals said because i that's one of the reasons even though i i guess by the technical definition of the term i'm a calvinist i usually don't call myself one because i think it's confusing because a lot of what a lot of folks think calvinism is I'm not. Right. So A I usually... Or whatever. Right. So I usually don't call myself that. I usually prefer to call myself something like Reformed. Okay. And, and then explain myself that way, um, not because I don't like the label of Calvinism. It's just more of the connotations that come with that. Right. The negative connotations. Right. So I just tr- choose not to identify okay. myself as that. But anyway...
0: And then let's, let's stop. So you mentioned two names. You mentioned J.P. Moreland right. and William Lane Craig. So let's just stop and talk about these two men. Uh, how... Prevalent, or how prolific, or what? What is the status of these men? Do you think in the evangelical world today?
1: Right, I think they're they're pretty they're somewhat popular, especially if you are bent towards things like apologetics and yeah. philosophy. Yeah. They yeah. are very well. Um, they uh, like Craig in particular has written tons of books, yeah. so he's a very prolific author. And same thing with Moreland. he's w- written quite a few books as well. Um, those both those guys are professors at mm. um, at Biola, yeah. and so it's pretty influential. Yeah. Pretty and William Lane Craig
0: actually identifies as a Southern Baptist. Right. Yeah, and so um, these two men, J.P. Moreland, William Lane Craig, are kind of the go-to men that conservative evangelical apologists kind of look towards as far as how to argue for, you know, against atheists and philosophical thought in Christianity. And so you were kind of looking at their stuff as well during that time.
1: Right. I was looking at their stuff as well, but I did want to, you know, like I did pick up Molina's works because I actually wanted to read what he said instead of what people were saying about him because that's one of the things like even calvinism a lot of people don't like oh i don't want to be a calvinist but have you actually read him yeah have you you you
0: read the institutes or have you read the Synod of Dort, or have you even read because a lot
1: of what people associate with calvinism isn't in the institutes it's actually very biblical Um, just kind of like mere christianity a lot of things so he's got even if you disagree with His take on the doctrines of grace. He's got a lot of good. Yeah, let's go on the bunny trail here. Because,
0: I mean, if you've read the institutes, which I've read the institutes of the Christian religion, it's amazing how much Calvin quotes Augustine. Right. And so, really, Calvin did not really come up with anything novel in his institutes. He was really just piggybacking on what Augustine and even Thomas Aquinas had basically assumed about the teachings about God and the nature of man and the nature of god's foreknowledge and omniscience and you know so we you know calvin is augustinian right um and so you know i think it's you know just again important to go back and read the original sources to see what these men and women actually said themselves
1: yeah and to get it, the full context of it you know right. because a lot of times we can cherry pick something sure. yeah from
0: read the whole chapter in the institutes you know not just a quote here and there now you men- mentioned kenneth keithley Right. Um, so, did you ever have him as a professor? At, you went to Southeastern. Yeah, I seminary? did.
1: I uh, went to Southeastern for a full school year. I never had him as a professor, but I def, you know, his works were around, and right. I did pick up his b- work on Molinism. Um, mm-hmm. I was writing a piece in Systematic Theology, and I yeah. had to, and I was dealing with that particular. Is position. that
0: salvation and sovereignty and Molinist approach? Is that the book? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And that, and let me just stop and talk about that book. I appreciate that book um, because I think he's really, really fair. I think right. that that book is not um, polemical against Arminians, polemical against Calvinists. I think he actually fairly represents... I mean, I had some problems with the book, but I think he did a really good job of trying to be fair. Um, and the reason why I would say probably for the Southern Baptist world, which is a lot of our listeners are, you know, William Lane Craig and Kenneth Keithley are kind of the two mm-hmm. go-to Molinists, you know, among Southern Baptist or traditional Southern Baptists or, or non-Calvinistic right. Southern Baptists.
1: Um, yeah, and I, and I think, you know, after reading... The works of Molina, um, it was, it was a challenge because <laughs> right. he's very philosophical, sure. um, and you have to read it slow. A lot of those guys that are trained sure. in ancient, kind of like sure. Greek philosophy and that sort of th- that sort of things, you have to read really slow exactly. to, in order to understand what they're saying.
0: So, how did you? So, talk about your journey. How did you come to the conclusion that Molinism was not actually? the best way to understand God's foreknowledge and omniscience and sovereignty.
1: Right. Well, it sort of seemed unnecessary after a time because it was it was sort of like, okay, out of all the possi- you know, possible worlds hypothesis, maybe we'll talk about that yeah. later, but the possible worlds that God could create, eventually he has to actualize and create one. And so at some point, it's like, what's the point of having all these possible worlds if God's actu- actualizing a particular world? So right. there's really kind of becomes unnecessary.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's, okay, and so my two critiques of Molinism, and maybe you would agree with this, is number one, it deals with possibilities and not reality of what the world God created and how God has right. created. And number two, the biggest issue I have with it is that actually the whole issue that God is contingent or God is dependent, however word you want to use, on libertarian free creatures, and he reacts or responds or or creates in light of, of what libertarianly free creatures would do so it shows god contingent upon that and anytime i think you you have god being contingent or dependent upon his creation to somehow decree or create i think you run into some major problems as far as the aseity and the immutability and the character of god
1: yeah and and that's uh, i guess what eventually and the other thing that kind of pulled me away from molinism as well is it sort of seems suspicious to me that Biblical scholars and theologians, like individuals who really were dealing with the text and what yep. the text says, they didn't come up with Molinism. It was more of something that came out of philosophy, okay. philosophy, and that they were attempting, that others were trying to find in Scripture somewhere.
0: Yeah, and let's talk about that because, as great and prolific and as venerated as William Lane Craig is, and I don't want to speak against William Lane Craig because I think he's you know a godly man, but a lot of these Christian apologists really start more from philosophy as opposed to exegetically coming to it from the text. What's, yeah. what's the danger you see in the modern-day apologetics movement? Do you, do you see a danger in you know, maybe elevating philosophy over exegetical study of the text? In right. other words, where do we get our actual philosophy? Does the philosophy come from the text, or do we have a philosophy and then we go impose it upon the text?
1: Right, and I think that's a, it, it's, it is a danger that any anybody who's trained philosophically runs into is at some point you get so in love with different theories and different ideas that are you know greco-roman or maybe you're trying even well intentionally trying to defend the faith sure and you have these all the good intentions to make the faith and explain it to non-christians and so but at some point because you love these ideas then you're trying to like uh yeah i gotta find i gotta root this in scripture somewhere i gotta
0: find a scripture to to back up yeah Yeah. and that's always dangerous it's always dangerous to say i've got an idea let me go find a scripture to back it up
1: right so you know proof test Proof texting is what we call that, and yeah. that's always kind of a dangerous yeah. waters to to yeah. end up yeah. end up in, yeah. and I I think that's what kind of ends up happening with Molinism is they they like the idea of Molinism, and then they ch- go through Scripture and try to find some things that yeah. seem to support it. Yeah,
0: well, let's just talk about some of the problems with Molinism. Let me first of all talk about the appeal. I I think in some ways, like you said. You don't want to be a full-blown Arminian where you believe you can lose your salvation or you believe, you know, that humans have autonomous, total libertarian free will. But some people don't want to go all the way to be a Calvinist to where, you know, God is meticulously in charge of everything because usually the charge against Calvinists is if you believe in meticulous sovereignty, you believe God is the author of evil. And so Molinism comes along and says, listen, you know, we want to protect the fact that God is meticulously sovereign. You know, he has exhaustive foreknowledge. We're not open theists. So we want to elevate all of the good things about Calvinism related to the sovereignty of God. But yet at the same time, we want to elevate libertarian free will you know so the two lynchpins of calvinism and arminianism they've elevated and tried to reconcile and i don't think they i think it's irreconcilable the way that they do that
1: right you know, you know and i think it's you know going back to an earlier point you know even when i was reading the works of molina and some of these other molinists i guess i always get a little suspicious if you know, you're reading all these works, and you're, you're starting to go, like, you almost need a college degree to understand them. Yeah. And, and it gets a little bit uh, suspicious when it's, something is so complex and complicated. Yeah, and,
0: and Molinism is complex. Now, wh- here's, here's one of the things. Okay, so we're going to lay our cards on the table, our listeners know, and you've just admitted we're both Reformed, we're both Calvinists, we both believe in God's absolute meticulous sovereignty and providence over all things, you know. Um, so we as, a, we as Calvinists don't deny that God has middle knowledge, No. That's not the issue. But in our view, it's unnecessary. Right. And so the issue for us is not whether or not God possesses middle knowledge of what people would do. The issue comes in how does God use that middle knowledge. Mm -hmm. So for the Molinists, they would understand that out of all the infinite possibilities, possibilities, and they would use the word available to God. Yeah. He chose to create this particular world based upon what he foresaw or knew would happen when libertarian free creatures were placed in that world. And so here's the big issue. God's foreknowledge, and again, we're not talking time here. We're talking logical decrees, Mm -hmm. logically not, not linear time. But God's foreknowledge of libertarian free people was logically prior to his decree to create the world, that's the major problem I have with. Is they they reverse the logical order of what I believe the decrees of God are.
1: Okay, no, yeah, that that makes sense, and I think it's a it's a fair point. I think Molinism is just trying to, like you said, just trying to hold both things together, and,
0: and so as. Calvinists, we would be called compatibilists. Right. And I've done former podcasts on compatibilism. Sometimes it's called soft determinism. Right now there's a debate because of the Sonny Hernandez and the Theodore Zacharides debate with Leighton Flowers and Jonathan Pritchett where those Calvinists have come off and said, You know, we're not we're not soft determinists we're hard determinists and Mm. and then you've got dr james white coming into i haven't entered into that conversation because i think it's it's kind of like beating a dead horse everybody's going around with what they think about it but traditionally according to the confessions okay i'm Mm. talking about the Synod of dort i'm talking about the westminster confession i'm talking about the second london baptist confession the reformed confessions that we hold to they are soft deterministic compatibilistic documents okay molinist on the other hand they're not going to be compatibilists. They're going to say they are soft libertarians. Yep. Okay? So they would agree with Calvinists that God is meticulously sovereign over all things, and God has exhaustive knowledge of all things, but at the same time they're going to argue that God uses what they would call counterfactual knowledge of libertarian free choices to accomplish His sovereign will. And the big word they use is counterfactual Mm -hmm. knowledge. Andrew, maybe explain what, it, what do they mean by counterfactual knowledge that God has of, it's almost like yeah. mi- middle knowledge, counterfactual knowledge is right. almost the same thing. You know, it's
1: kind of rooted in that libertarian idea of free will. So, so, so for example, like, you know, I chose to have uh, pancakes and eggs this morning, but there could have been a conceivable world where I chose to have cold cereal instead of pancake and eggs. So God has knowledge that counterfactual of the world that I would have chosen uh, s- cold cereal as opposed to pancakes and eggs okay. so
0: and so why did he choose the world why did he choose this world
1: yeah he w- they would say because it was in god's view it was the greatest possible world
0: the best possible world where he would actualize yeah. his meticulous will
1: yeah so god could have foreseen a world where i would have chosen cold cereal this morning but he actualized the world right so
0: pancakes. so let's just ask the very logical question what's the basis for god actualizing the world
1: It's whatever he has determined is the greatest good. Based upon what? Based upon human choice. Human
0: choice. So in the end, what is God contingent or dependent upon in creating this actual world? Human choices. Okay. So let's think about Peter for a moment. I mean, this past Sunday I preached on Peter where he denied Jesus three times. And obviously Jesus predicted it in all four Gospels that Jesus, I mean, that Peter would predict, you know, Peter would deny Jesus three times and the rooster would crow. Um, So in Molinism... And there's a conceivable world or a feasible world where Peter would have not have denied Jesus. He could have used his libertarian free will to deny him twice, deny him five times, not deny him. But God saw what Peter would do in that moment. And based upon what God saw Peter would do, he created this world. And set up the situation where Peter would freely choose to deny Jesus. Is that is that an accurate I, description of, of Molinism? Yeah, or yeah am I, I off I, on that?
1: No, I, I don't think so. I think I think Molinism would would want to say that you know they God actualized the best possible world, and in this best possible world, God created Peter denies Christ, and he chose to do that freely. That would okay. be what they would say. Okay. which is really it's kind of kind of weird because then at some point God's responsible for Peter's sin. So I don't really know if they have really helped themselves. Okay, so out. let's
0: talk about that. So. Th- The Molinism wants to get God off the hook for somehow ordaining something evil to happen. Right. But then in this, by God creating the best possible world, he's actually created a world where Peter does... Sin. Sin.
1: And he sins freely.
0: Okay. We would call that, our definition would be compatibilism. And we (laughs) can talk about that later. Kenneth Keithley, I'm going to deal with Kenneth Keithley because it may be a little bit of William Lane Craig, but I think... Kenneth Keithley, because he's a Southern Baptist, he's a professor at a Southern Baptist seminary, Southeastern. Um, He's written a book, Salvation and Sovereignty, A Molinist Approach. It came out in 2010, published by uh, Brodman and Holman Academic. Here's what he says. I'm going to give a few quotes. Kenneth Keithley writes, quote, Molinism argues that God's sovereign choice is informed by foreknowledge, but not determined by it. How do you respond to that? It's informed by it, but not determined by it
1: well at some point it's it's it doesn't really i guess it kind of seems to kind of doesn't make a lot of sense after a while because it's like i'm not quite sure i can follow him because to be determined um i guess that i guess keithley's trying to say that god's not determined by people's choices and i, I and i got to commend him for that right. because i i do want you do want to hold to god's independence i think that's a key attribute sure. of god um however at some point if you're going to say that god actualizes worlds based upon human free choice right I, I don't know how you're going to escape that and, conundrum. And,
0: right, and here's the big question that a lot of people ask Molin, Molinism, Molinists is, okay, can you scripturally tell me why God chose to actualize this world based upon other worlds? Does, it, does the scripture give an answer to that?
1: It, does, it doesn't. And so, okay. like I said, about the best they can come up with is whatever they God, because God is the greatest possible being. He has to pick the best world. That's what they would say.
0: Well, and here's what he also says. Kenneth Keith, he says, Molinism posits that an infinite number of feasible worlds were available for God to create, but it provides no explanation for why he chose this one. Okay, so there were feasible worlds God could have created. Right. But in the Bible, we don't really know why God chose this one. I guess because God chose this one.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I think that's just, it, I guess the best thing they can come up with is just trying to reflect upon God's attributes and reflecting upon that theologically and sure. philosophically to say sure. this is our guess. But it's still a guess. Right.
0: So let's talk about choices. Let's talk about – so as Reformed people, we, we're, we hold to compatibilism, Right. which compatibilism says God is absolutely meticulously sovereign over all things. Um, all things come to pass because of God's sovereign decree. Yet at the same time, people freely choose what they want to choose mm-hmm. based upon their nature – Right. Based upon their personality, based upon um, their upbringing, their upbringing and, yeah. a lot of different things actually. So, um, because of the fall, people are born in sin. They're born in bondage to sin. They're enslaved to sin. Their nature is enslaved to sin, and so they're going to act based upon their nature. And that's. But at the same time, God is sovereign in that.
1: Right, and and I think um, you know very edgeworthy and people's. When you define free will, when you say Jonathan Jonathan Edwards. Edwards, Yeah, Jonathan Edwards, and I think Edwards is probably right on this. uh, You know, free will, I think, is best defined by our ability to do what it is that we most desire. Right. And the problem with us is we desire the wrong things. Right.
0: We have inordinate desires, as Augustine would say. And so, but a soft libertarian, a Molinist, they would say that a person's character simply determines what set of choices are available to them. From a set of choices, what, what's available, they're going to choose. Um, but at the time of choosing, a person has contra free will, libertarian free will, to choose to refrain or not refrain, or choose or not choose, between two competing options. Right. That's what they would say. Now, here's the thing about Molinism, that it flies in the face of the doctrines of grace, um, because in the end, it's synergistic. Yeah. Especially when it comes to the issue of... Sovereign regeneration, or what we would call irresistible grace, because Molinism clearly affirms resistible grace. Um, And what they would argue is that grace is offered to sinners, grace is available to sinners, but that grace is not effectual. It's not monergistic. Um, and and that's is the big problem I have with Molinism is that everything is based upon potentialities, based upon availabilities, based upon contingencies, and ultimately in the end, human freedom is trumps God's either sovereign decree, God's sovereign regeneration. Um, in the end, it's synergistic in the sense that it, it's either a cooperative effort or it's a resistible effort or it's an available effort, but it doesn't actually effectually accomplish what God determined to accomplish. Is that, does that make sense to you?
1: Right. No, I think they would say that God actualized the world where he foresaw they, them coming to salvation. That's what they would yes. they, they would say, and that's his grace is yeah. choosing that world that they would come to salvation.
0: Yeah. But why do they come to that?
1: Yeah, they would, they would want possi- to say free choice. In that
0: possible world, why did they, you know, as opposed to another world where they yeah. wouldn't.
1: Yeah, and they, they would say because so it was their free choice in that world to choose God.
0: Yeah, okay. And one of the interesting things, when you read Kenneth Keithley's book, when he tries to deal with um, irresistible grace or the Calvinistic view of sovereign regeneration, he uses an interesting term. He says he likes to use the word overcoming grace. And and he says basically overcoming grace is the their definition that grace merely persuades a sinner, it woos a sinner. Um, But but my question is why label it overcoming grace? What's it overcoming? If if, if if you hear the word overcoming grace, what are you assuming?
1: There's something to be overcome.
0: Okay, and so in our view, we would agree, okay, God's grace is overcoming grace. What does his grace
1: overcome? We would say his grace needs to overcome our sinful nature to choose the wrong things as opposed to choosing Christ.
0: Okay, so if we if there's a bondage to the will, if we are morally and spiritually unable to come to faith in Christ because of our sin, God has to overcome that grace. What we would argue is that it's effectual. Right. God actually overcomes deadness in his elect and grants them actual grace to come. Right. His view is God gives overcoming grace, which basically makes grace available. It persuades, but ultimately you choose whether you want to have that grace or not. So my question in the end is what's it overcoming? What are you, what are you actually overcoming? Some type of initial sin? I mean, it almost yeah. sounds like there's, there's nothing it's really overcoming. It's just making, it's making it available, it's persuading, but it's not really overcoming anything.
1: Right, and I, I think it's, again, this is probably, I, I guess when it comes to, to um, I, I want to be as generous as I can to Molinus, because I was there for a while, and I do think that they're trying to somehow contend that human beings are able to choose God, and yet at the same point, God somehow has to be involved with salvation. But I think calling it synergistic is is best because i think even in its best possible sense there is a synergism between god actualizing worlds and people choosing god and
0: i think that for the molinists they they want to they want to embrace all of the good things of reformed theology right but they just can't bring themselves to come all the way over because i think they see those passages that teach deadness, and sin. They see those passages that teach sovereign election. They, teach those, they see those passages that teach God's sovereignty, and, and, and they have to figure out how to do with what they want to do with those. And they're like, eh, no, I don't think I want to go the Arminian route, but I don't want to think I go the Calvinist route, so let's go this middle knowledge route. Um, Kenneth Keithley also says this, quote, all who hear the gospel are drawn to Christ. He takes that from John twelve thirty two. All who hear the cos- gospel are drawn to Christ. Some accept and some reject, but none are compelled to faith. Unbelievers had the same grace available as believers, and this should have resulted in their conversion also,
1: which is really interesting when you read that full chapter in his book. Well, no, just that full chapter in John. Oh, John, okay. Yeah, you know, if seem or just the book of John itself, all that the Father have given me, He draws. And so right. it's like I don't know. You need to read the full context. Of the well, book of John. and so
0: basically, again, it's this word "available." Yeah, grace is available, but it's not effectual. God sees what would happen given that grace in that possible world. They choose Christ, and based upon what God sees them doing or would do, He actualizes a world where it comes to happen.
1: And it's sort of a head scratcher because I don't really see much difference between that and prevenient and grace. I don't.
0: Okay, so. Define prevenient grace. What is prevenient
1: grace? Yeah, prevenient grace is sort of like a kind of a lifeboat theology where, you know, God makes a lifeboat available and it's up to you to get in the lifeboat.
0: Yeah, prevenient, gra- yeah, prevenient grace is an Arminian view that God gives assisting grace, Yeah, but not over, in his words, not overcoming or effectual grace. It helps you out, right. but it doesn't actually bring you all the way. You can resist it or you can choose to cooperate with that grace.
1: And yeah, basically- so, yeah, and so that's kind of the lifeboat analogy that I often hear. It's like the lifeboat's there. It's up to you to get into it. Yeah.
0: Well, listen to this other quote from Keith Lee, which is very interesting. He says, quote, From the repertoire of available options provided by his middle knowledge, God freely and sovereignly chooses which one he will bring to pass. God meticulously, quote, sets the table so that humans freely choose what he has predetermined. I think that that quote right there kind of defines Molinism in a nutshell, I right. would say. Yep. How yep. do you respond to that?
1: You know, at some point, it, it, again, here you got... Um, it's, it's sort of strange because it's like at some point you're going to have to go one way or the other. Is it God's decree based upon human choice or are human choices based upon God's decree? Yeah. And you can't have it both ways. I mean,
0: look at the language he uses in here. All yeah. right, well, let's just pick apart the sentence. From the repertoire of available options provided by us. Okay, so God has available options. There's that availability. Right. But notice the Calvinistic language next here. God freely and sovereignly chooses which one he will bring to pass. I mean that sounds almost like reforming, reform, yeah. yeah. God sovereignly and freely but and then God meticulously just sets the table so that humans freely choose what he has predetermined. Yeah. It's almost like he's trying to he's trying to define compatibilism there but he doesn't want to go all the way because yeah. in compatibilism you you have soft determinism whereas in molinism you have soft libertarianism but it's almost like He's playing around with language in one sentence to bring in Calvinism and Arminianism into one sentence almost. Right. But then it's based upon available options, the repertoire of available options that God sees. I just don't like the language of things being available to God and him. So the question is, well, how, how did that stuff become available
1: to God? yeah and, and I guess to, according to them, it would be because of his foreknowledge, you know just God being able to see all future contingents
0: right, and again, logically, according to them logically god 's foreknowledge of events comes before his decree, right. whereas what we would believe is god 's decree comes logically before his yeah. or his maybe not maybe a better way of saying it is god 's foreknowledge and his decree are one and the same in that it 's right. part of his sovereign will from all eternity.
1: Yeah, and, and I guess, like, could could God, I mean, this is the hardest, when we're trying to understand God's complete and exhaustive foreknowledge. <laughs> could, yeah, we can't. Yeah.
0: yeah. Now, here's, a, I'm going to give you an inc- incoherent statement. I'm, I'm going to pick on William Lane Craig here for a moment. Not, I I, I think he's a great, you know, he's a great um, apologist. And I think he's he's got a lot of good things to say. But this sentence I read, and I'm like, <laughs> I had no idea what he meant. This is what William Lane Craig says, quote, It is up to God whether we find ourselves in a world in which we are predestined. But it's up to us whether we are predestined in the world in which we find ourselves. Does that make any
1: sense to you at all? (laughs) It almost sounds Lutheran, (laughs) you know, in in the sense that everybody's predestined. but Or Karl Barth type thing. Yeah, yeah, so it seems kind of... I don't, I, but it doesn't make any sense. That's probably the the thing that sounds most similar to, to me.
0: Yeah. Well, let me ask another big question for a Molinist. Okay. So let's talk about possible worlds, actualized worlds. Obviously we can't answer this, but a big question would be, okay, why does God not actualize or create a world where everyone's saved? Right. I mean, if, if grace is available, Mm -hmm. but it's not effectual, people have contra causal free will. God has middle knowledge of an infinite number of possible worlds There must be a logically conceivable world where everyone is saved. Would we agree that there's a logically feasible world where everyone's saved that God could have seen? Yeah.
1: You know, I think if we can think of it, assuredly God could have thought of it. Okay, so it's
0: it's logically feasible. Yeah. Okay, so the question is, okay, why didn't God do it? Because you would think that if God had foreknowledge, and this is even the issue for the Arminian. Yeah. I mean, you back it up and you say, okay, so, so, like, let, let's, just talk, let's just jump out of Molinism and talk about Arminianism for a moment. The Arminian view of God's predestination is on foreknowledge. God looks down, sees what humans are going to do, and based upon that, he chooses mm-hmm. based upon what he sees. And then he elects those who choose. He passes over those that don't choose. Mm-hmm. But in the end, you still have God seeing something that he could have intervened to overcome God could have chosen to save everyone if he wanted to. So in Arminianism, you've got God choosing to save everyone if he wanted to. In Molinism, you've got a feasible world where God chose to save everyone if he wanted to. In Calvinism, you have God choosing whom he wants to. So in all three views, none of them get God off the hook. No. Because ultimately, it all comes back to... Whether God chose it because he chose it, God chose it because he had middle knowledge, or God chose it because he foresaw it, ultimately it comes back to the fact that God chose this world or God chose those individuals when he could have done otherwise. And so you have a world where you have lost people. And not everybody's going to heaven.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, think the Molinist is trying to somehow make that pill easier to swallow. (laughs) Um, But regardless of how you parse it, every position is going to have to deal with God's interaction with evil. You know, how, why, why is there evil? Why are there lost people? And regardless of what theological system that you, have, that you have, you're going to have to come to terms with how does God's relationship with that. Actually, I think it's been called, like, the greatest mystery of all. Like, why did God create a world in which evil exists? Yeah. I don't know if there really is a good answer to that.
0: No, I mean, we've got some, I mean, the different philosophies and theologies attempt to answer that. Um, And I guess since we're on the topic of Molinism, a Molinist would say, well, the reason God did not choose a world where everyone's saved is because he saw a world in which Everyone did what they would do and he chose to actualize that world because he thought it was the best possible world to either demonstrate his glory or the best possible world. I've heard even William Lane Craig said God created the best possible world to have the maximum ratio between saved and lost. Right. So that God's justice and God's glory and God's mercy can be on display. You know, and so that's the kind of answer they give. The yeah. best possible world based upon the best ratio.
1: Right. And, and regardless of what system that you have, you're gonna to have to come you're gonna to have to have an answer, but we're probing the mystery. You know, yeah. We're probing mysteries here. I don't know if we're a, anybody's really going to be able yeah. to answer that yeah. well. And, he,
0: and here's another question that, that we would ask to Amolness. Um, these counterfactuals or these yeah. potential choices or these potentials, do they exist independently of God? And if they exist independently of God, then is there something out there that is outside of God's decree or outside of God's creation? Where do the, where do those counterfactuals come from if God didn't, incent, in a sense, create
1: Right, and I guess their only appeal would be, again, to God's foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is such a big concept in, in Molinism, and I think that's, what, that's where they would go, mm-hmm. is to say, like, it exists in God's foreknowledge, but maybe not in his, what I guess what we termed earlier, his free knowledge. Yeah. And
0: and, and I, one of the things that, you know, often comes up in conversations, I've had it on Facebook groups, um, is what about the unreached person, the person that's right. never heard the gospel? What's the what's the eternal destiny of the, you know, the person in the deep, dark jungle of Africa that's never heard? Right. Um, you know, our answer, based upon Romans 1, other passages, is that without, without conscience, faith in Christ, all those who die spend eternity in hell. Right. Their Molinist answer is very interesting. They would say... God saw a world where the unreached people would not have responded to the gospel if it had given, been given to them, so he actualized a world in which they would never get the gospel because yeah. if they would have had the gospel, they would have rejected it anyway. So there's a world now that God created where there's unreached people that never get the gospel because he foresaw that if the gospel did come, them they would not have never responded anyway.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, yeah and again, it's, that's just a common, common answer. But I think we should probably talk about... Um, you know those couple passages that they do appeal to yeah. quite frequently. You yeah. know because I mentioned their proof texting earlier, yeah. And I think it's important to say at least maybe a couple of places where they okay, think so, it's okay.
0: So, so the big one's First 1 Samuel twenty three, right? And so kind of tell us the story. Do you remember the story from First Samuel twenty three? David's right. in Kelah.
1: Yeah, David. David has just saved the city, and he's in this particular town, and Saul's seeking his life, and um, he's, he he kind of hears that Saul's on his way, right? And he after hearing that Saul is on his way he thinks to himself are these people gonna give me over to Saul and you know he prays and God's like yeah if you stay here they're gonna deliver you over to Saul and so David leaves and so that's the story right
0: and what's their argument what's the Molinist argument about that
1: yeah what they're gonna say is well there's a conceivable possible world where David would have been turned over to Saul because if he would have remained there Saul would have had him and so you know there's that that is the counterfactual state of affairs they would okay. call it
0: so there's like a, a conditional if then you yeah. know that, that there could have been a, a, there could have been a conceivable or possible world where david stayed right and would have been overtaken by saul right and god has middle knowledge that that would not have happened so based upon god's middle knowledge he was able to declare to david go ahead and leave yeah is, is that basically what i'm understanding them to right. say
1: yeah yeah they're going to say that there was a possible world where david would have been handed over to saul but you know, because of this prayer, he, he was not. So they just, anyway, I think the thing is that, that we would point to as a Reformed individual is to say, like, well, th- this was the means that God used to, right. to save David out of that situation. Yeah, so prayer. we would
0: say, you know, and so I've actually heard some other people, that I've, I've seen this um, argument recently from some non-Calvinists, that, hey, there's an example where God prophesied something that didn't absolutely come true, so therefore, you know, God had foreknowledge of something that wasn't that did not come to pass right so therefore god does not decree all things that come to pass because you know it, there was a contingency there right how, how do we answer that as you know from the text and it's from as reformed people
1: right you know i i think here it's it's important to remember that you know david's in prayer and god does this is one of those great mysteries we pray and prayer does things and prayer is sometimes the means that god uses to do things yeah. and And it's like, regardless of how you see Scripture, that's very obvious prayer does things. Right.
0: Yeah, prayer doesn't change God's mind, but prayer is the means by which God accomplishes His will in the world. Now, God's got a sovereign decree of everything He's going to come to pass, but sometimes He works out that decree through prayer, through human agency, in the world, in time. Um, I mean, the biggest example you can think about that is the crucifixion of Christ. Um, In Acts chapter 2, 23, uh, Peter's preaching at Pentecost, says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So the death of Christ was a definite plan, it was uh, under the foreknowledge of God, it was God's sovereign decree to have it happen, but who actually carried it out?
1: Those lawless men. Those yeah. lawless
0: men. Um, read Acts four twenty seven 27-28 because you see almost the same thing there.
1: Yeah, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Okay.
0: So God had a predestined plan yeah. to take place. Who carried out the plan in time?
1: Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, the Jewish leaders. Yeah, so,
0: so here's what compatibilism says in a nutshell. God freely did what God sovereignly decreed to do. The human agents freely did what they wanted to do. In the end, God's sovereign will is accomplished,
1: and people did what they
0: they wanted to do. Now, the mystery of compatibilism comes into, okay, we don't know exactly how all that works, but we we know that in a way God did not force those men Mm -hmm. against their will to crucify Jesus. They acted in accordance with their will, they did not have a knowledge of God's decree while they were doing that. In the moment in time, they were doing what they wanted to do, but what they wanted to do was God's predestined plan to happen.
1: Right. And I do think it's important to remember, too, You know, going back to our earlier story in Samuel, um, we always want to be careful when it comes to uh, making things that are in narratives normative. Right. No, um, that's true. You know, and I think just as a, a hermeneutical guide is... For example, you know, Acts is the same way. And a lot of times, you know, like just because they spoke when they received the Spirit, they spoke in tongues, doesn't mean that it's normative experience for everyone.
0: So that's a good hermeneutical. Let's just stop and talk about that. So there are what we would call clear, explicit, didactic teachings about the nature of God and the nature of man in Scripture, right? And yet there are also implicit inferences we can make that oftentimes emerge from narrative passages that tell a story and you can kind of deduce or infer something from a story right. so hermeneutically or exegetically which should take priority in your understanding of god and man and in some of these theological issues which should take priority
1: yeah this is the scripture interpreters scripture yeah, the analogy idea. Of faith yeah idea. and so we we have the we want to take the clear didactic teaching of scripture takes precedence over a narrative uh, as far as our understanding goes. And I think that's a good hermeneutical guideline to follow because often if we just go with the narratives, we can make some things that are normative for all Christians, which maybe aren't normative.
0: And let's also talk about progressive revelation in Scripture. Do, you know, you can take a narrative in the Old Testament, standalone right. narrative in the Old Testament, and build an entire theology out of that and not take it canonically in how does... How does from Genesis to Revelation, the full canon of Scripture, address that issue, especially as it unfolds in the New Testament and maybe interprets back upon some of those Old Testament passages?
1: Right, and I think that's that's important because, you know, uh, that's how you can end up with some heresies sometimes, um, or or maybe just a, a teaching that I find very difficult because I had friends that I grew up with that were telling me I wasn't, basically a really good christian until i spoke in tongues yeah and they would point to the book of acts to tell me that well if i want to be a good christian i need to start speaking in tongues sure sure and (laughs) yeah i would disagree strongly now did then but i would do so even more strongly now so, well, as we kind of
0: bring this to a close, I know we've kind of not really dealt with a lot of text. This has been very philosophical. We've tried to kind of unpack Molinism, talk about what it is. Are, are there any final issues we want to address or weaknesses or, or, or things that we want to expose to Molinism?
1: You know, I do want to say, I do. I think it's important to remember that the Molinists are, are brothers in Christ. Oh, yes, exactly. yeah, And so, you know, I do want to emphasize that, not saying that they're heretics or exactly. anything like that right, um exactly. I, I do think i can understand where they're coming from i called myself one at one point however i guess in, in my view um after kind of having gone through it myself if your theological system seems more driven by this, your philosophy and your ideas rather than the the careful exposition of texts I think you need to be very, very careful about that particular system. And in my view, it seems like Molinism, from my understanding, it comes more out of works of philosophy and theology than it does rooted from careful exposition of the text.
0: Right, and I agree with you. And I would say, you know, my, again, I'll, I'll, I'll just lay my cards on the table. My biggest problem with Molinism is that in the end, it makes God contingent upon human choices to yeah. determine how he's going to actualize a possible world. And everything's based upon potentialities and foreknowledge, not on the primary or the primacy of God's sovereign decree being logically prior to human responsibility.
1: Yeah, that's very clear in the text. Yes. <laughs> Especially in Isaiah. <laughs> I'm the Lord, I'm doing it.
0: Yeah, yeah. and so, you know, one of the things about middle knowledge is it's really not necessary to an all-knowing, all decreeing God But the Molinist conception of free will makes it impossible for God to exercise providential control over his creation. Why? Because men and women would be free to resist his decree. God can only bring to pass the actions of free agents via his middle knowledge of what they would freely do if given a certain... um, And so I I think it really elevates... In the end, it wants to protect God's sovereignty, but in the end, it is still a system that elevates human freedom above God's meticulous sovereignty And so, you would have to say, in the end, it maybe has more in common with Arminianism than it has with Calvinism, even though it tries to straddle the line between those two, those two views. Right,
1: and and I think it's eventually. I do think Arminianism and Calvinism exhaust the options. I think eventually, I, this is why I don't think Molinism there really is, has been throughout history a lot of Molinists is because it eventually does collapse.
0: Yeah, it'll collapse into one or the other. I yeah. mean, if you study the scriptures, I mean, if you hold to God's meticulous sovereignty over all things and, and you try to reconcile that with human responsibility, you end up becoming a compatibilist, I. Yeah. i.e. Calvinist. Or if you talk about the libertarian free will and how that all works, you end up either becoming an Arminian. Yeah. And so I know our I know our Molinistic, non-Calvinistic, traditional Southern Baptist listeners would say, oh, you're putting us either into a Calvinistic or Arminian camp. You can't do that. We're Baptist or we're traditionalists. Um, at some point, you're either going to have to land on the side that God's eternal sovereign decree is logically prior to his creation of human creatures or you're going to have to come on the side that God's foreknowledge of what human creatures would do comes logically prior to his creative decree. That's really the two, however you boil it down, whether you call yourself an Arminian, a Molinist, a traditional non-Calvinist, you know Calvinist Southern Baptist, or a Calvinist, ultimately you have to understand how does God's decree right. relate to his foreknowledge, his omniscience, and human freedom. That's really the issue, and you have to work that out, how, those, how his decree works with human responsibility and foreknowledge and omniscience
1: right and i do think it's you do end up with one or the other I, I don't think you can try you can do your best to try to straddle the fence but i do think at some point you're going to you're going to be leaning towards one side of the fence and the other and you're eventually going to end up over there um, i don't think you, you're going to be able to sit on the fence forever yeah
0: and so for our listeners as we draw this to a cr- close i would encourage you to go you know read that book salvation and sovereignty a molinist approach it's probably the most accessible book on molinism that's out there it's written by southern Baptist. it's fair it's pretty easy to read um he kind of you know talks about he, he deals, I think, more with Calvinism than he does with Arminianism, but he kind of right. structures the book related around the five points and, and mm-hmm. talks about how Molinism kind of counteracts. His acronym is ROSES as opposed right. to TULIP. Um, but I, I think if you want to study Molinism, that would be a good place to start. Probably if you want to get into the deep end of the water, you know, go read William Lane Craig or even like you did. Go read go Molina. Read Molina yeah, yeah. You know, And so uh, if you just want to, to get kind of a taste of that. Um, but you have to determine, based upon your reading of the Scriptures, ultimately how god's sovereign meticulous decree relates to human freedom how it relates to his omniscience his foreknowledge how it relates to time and you got to work all those things out and so i know this is kind of philosophical but ultimately these items do show up in scripture and the reason we've come to these conclusions is because of the revelation of scripture and how we believe scripture presents you know these truths
1: right and we need to ask what takes primacy is it our ideas or is it scripture you know at, at some point we're going to have to make a we need to make sure our ideas are rooted in scripture and that our philosophies is rooted in scripture and not the other way
0: exactly exactly well andrew i think we've drawn this to a close it's been an interesting discussion on molinism uh, do you have anything final you want to add before we kind of close out our time together
1: uh, I think it's been a good discussion. I hope you guys think carefully through these issues, and it's a, it's an important topic. Um wish that more people were thinking through it. It's
0: wise words from a recovering Molinist. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, we appreciate you listening to Understanding Christianity. Again, this has been the podcast led by Pastor Sean Cole and um, Andrew Hayes. We're both at Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. Uh, we'd love for you to... Check out the website, www.shawncole.net. You can also go to Facebook and check out the Understanding Christianity Facebook page. We also post some videos and audio there as well. You can go to iTunes and give us a positive review and rating. That would really help us. You can share this on your social media platforms. Love to hear from you if you have some ideas for topics. I do appreciate all the emails that I get sent, the Facebook conversations we have, the tweets. Uh, it's very enjoyable. Um, I hope you have a very Merry Christmas as the Christmas season of Approaches. and until next time may the lord bless you and keep you cause his face to shine upon you and may you keep your eyes fixed on jesus